I'm Nick Turzo, and you are listening to The Radical. This week's guest hails from East Texas. As they say, everything is bigger in Texas, including my guest's personality and talent. Having released 11 solo albums and having collaborated with guys like Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christofferson, Duff McKagan, and John Doe, this man is gifted. Musician Jesse Dayton joins me to discuss his unique guitar style, film soundtracks, his upcoming book, our beloved Austin, Texas, and his obsession with zombies. Coming up, my conversation with Jesse Dayton. Hey, Jesse, welcome to the show. My first Texan. I'm so excited since I moved back to Austin. Oh, wow. Okay, nice, man. Uh, I'm honored to be here. How are you, Nick? You're the perfect diplomat, the perfect representative for the state of Texas. So, Well, some some would disagree, uh, <laughs> you know, but uh, what are you going to do? I mean, the you know, my family, seven generations, you know, and wow. And, you know, we go back before, you know, the Battle of San Jacinto and and my parents, my mom and dad were the first ones to make it out of the oil field and become, you know, kind of, I guess, pseudo academics. They went to college and, you know, um, studied and, and, uh, you know, and so I had a very different uh upbringing than some of my fellow Texas that I grew up with down in Beaumont, you know, which is yeah. on the Texas, Louisiana border. And that's why I, I say all this, I, you know, like it's nice to be warmed as the, you know, in intro as the warm Texan, but you know, we're really, we're kind of divided down here these days. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I mean, that experience, I mean, you just had a EP that you did last year called Gulf Coast, right? Which yeah. has that Cajun flair, kind of has that whole mix of yeah. who you are, because it's really hard to identify you, because stylistically, yeah. you you are flexible. Yeah. Um, what was that like, kind of growing up there, like, you know, between the Texas and the kind of the Cajun going on? Well, it's interesting, because it's so unlike the rest of Texas, um, first thing, there's a lot of Catholics there, um, you know, and rest of Texas is super, you know, Protestant Baptist. So I grew up with a lot of people with French names, you know, and a lot of Cajun people. And, uh, and, you know, Beaumont, from Beaumont to say, uh, you know, right above New Orleans, it is real Cajun country. In fact, I'm only one of five Texans to ever be asked to play the Fado Do stage at Jazz Fest uh, because you have to be from Louisiana to play there. But they let you in if you're like from Beaumont and that, you know, that's kind of the cutoff. And um, and, and then musically, it was just insane. And, you know, it prepared me for so much, uh, especially being a session guitar player or playing different kinds of music. Cause I grew up with, you know, I mean, I, I'm 55 now. So I grew up, you know, in the seventies when we still had um, regional hits, we had 24 hour uh, Cajun DJs. Um, we had uh, all this great music coming in from Louisiana. We had all this, uh, you know, Latino music, we had, uh, you know, a lot of rhythm and blues, you know, a lot of black folks, a lot of African-American influence. And so, you know, Dallas to me was just like a sea of white people. You know what I mean? And uh, it's pretty, it's, it's still kind of uh, a weird thing, but I'm very, uh, you know, grateful that I got to experience that. And I knew I would be moving to Austin because um, my mother was studying like I think she was doing her dissertation for some big, you know, degree she was getting. And we would walk down, uh, you know, these streets in Austin. I would see all these gorgeous hippie girls and and, and uh, you know, hip huggers and halter tops. 
And I was like, oh, I'm definitely moving here as soon as I dazed and confused for real. It was really, (laughs) it was literally dazed and confused. It was like the same exact soundtrack. All those songs from the movie were what they played. And, you know, you'd walk down the drag in Austin over by UT and it was just like for, you know, small town kid. It was mind blowing. That's so great. How long have you been in Austin now? Well, um, I mean, I got a place here um, when I got out of high school and but I, I it was more like I kept a room at a musician crash pad. Um, that was back when you could, you know, we could all move in together for four or five hundred bucks and rent a house. And uh, and then I got a record deal and I went out. I lived out in Los Angeles for about three years, but I kept my place here the whole time. Uh, but I bought my house here over 20 years ago. Um, yeah. So smart now, isn't it? <laughs> well, I'd like to take credit for it, but <clears throat> you know, my wife who's, who's from a completely different world than me, uh, she basically put a gun to my head and said, Hey, dumb, dumb, you're going to take some of that movie money and we're going to buy this house and be grown ups." Yeah. Beautiful and smart. What more can we say about your wife? Yeah. So so when you did the Gulf Coast sessions, I mean, did you do that prior to COVID? Like I did go and do some touring and stuff? I I never meant to release it really. I I played everything on it except some fiddle and, and, um, and accordion, but I recorded that record for $500 and literally I made it myself with a buddy of mine. And the whole idea of the record was, um, hey, we just got the rug, proverbial rug pulled out from under us. The whole world's it's apocalyptic and I'm not going to be recording anytime. So why don't we just put this out? Um, And I told the label, I said, you know, let's don't go full throttle with PR and, you know, let's just put it out to my existing fan base. But because I made it for so cheap and we had no money in it. Uh, it did really, really well for me. Um, in fact, I tell younger musicians all the time, I'm like, you know, if you got your house in order and your business together, you don't have to sell a lot of anything to make a pretty good living doing this. Right. Well, that's what I really want to talk to you a little bit about. Cause I think you've built, you know, kind of a fascinating career. I mean, you've been able to play with legends, been able to go down your own path with your own career. You experiment outside with film and film music and directing. I mean, you just have had a, you know, it's an interesting artist career that's multifaceted. And I think people can kind of learn from you um, how it can be done somewhat. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, a lot of it was done out of necessity, you know, the old punk rock, do it yourself DIY thing. Um, cause you know, when I was a kid, Joe Strummer saved me from going to hair metal concerts and I was well on my way. Now, luckily I'm old enough to remember pre-metal when hard rock was really cool. You know, it was really great. You had Thin Lizzy, you had all these early kind of bands. Um, and, and then by the time post Van Halen came out, the clash came along and saved me and that whole philosophy. I remember seeing the clash and Joe, a guy named Joe Ely was opening up for him. And I'd never seen Joe before Ely. And they were both playing like buddy Holly songs. And there was this kind of through line through the whole thing uh, of style. And um, you know, like it was, it wasn't cool to, to lust after the whole stardom thing, you know, it was more like, Hey, we're just going to do this for ourselves. And, and so that kind of carried on later. And, you know, what, what happened with me, um, right before the, um, pandemic hit was a good friend of mine in Los Angeles, who was a literary agent was having dinner with this guy named Ben Schaefer, who is, uh, he's a, a big editor publisher for the Hachette book group. And he's done some pretty heady stuff. He, he edited um, 
the Christopher Hitchens books, the last three, but he also did the replacements book and he did Steve Jones's uh, Lonely Boy about the Sex Pistols. And so they're having dinner one night and he's kind of kvetching to her about how when you hire a music or when you give a musician a gig, you have to hire a writer with it. It costs not really cost effective. She go, he goes, but there is this guy online that I read his rants, Jesse Dayton. And she's like, oh, my God, I know Jesse Dayton. And he's like, well, <laughs> he's like, well, tell him to send me three chapters about anything he wants to write about. And I'll bring it back to the big meeting and, and we'll run up the flagpole, see if anyone's interested. So I wrote a chapter on making movies with Rob Zombie, a chapter on playing the inaugural ball and drinking Jack and Cokes with Bill Clinton and Lucinda Williams. And then I and then I the third one I wrote was um, being discovered by Waylon Jennings on a TV show in 96 uh, and ended up playing with him. So I wrote those three chapters and said, what do these three people have in common? And uh, they called me and gave me a book book deal. So, oh, wow. yeah. So author, I forgot that part. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I just turned in my 82,000 word, uh, book called bow monster. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, it was great. And the, you know, the advance they gave me kind of helped me stay out of my savings and cause I wasn't playing any shows and, it all, you know, the universe was was looking out for me. Right. Well, now you're in trouble because you can't just drop those three big meatballs on me yeah. um, of stories, and you can't just not tell me now. So you're gonna have to. Well, yeah. <laughs> you're gonna have to share some stories now before the book comes out. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, a lot of it was fluke. A lot of it was timing. A lot of it was, you know, the hundred thousand hours I put in of playing just total dive toilet honky tonks juke joints i mean and i when i say those words i mean that's what they were i'm not you know those words get thrown around a lot those places don't really exist like they used to when i was a kid but they totally did like when i was like from high school to like 25 you know i mean full-on chicken wire in front of the stage the beer bottles flying. Absolutely. The full on all that stuff, you know, I mean, you go play Crowley, Louisiana on a Saturday night, 1983. And let me tell you, it's some hardcore shit, man. <laughs> you know, you're just like, God, if I can just get through these last three songs and get my 75 bucks and get back out and get out of here, I'll be, you know, but it's amazing. But, um, so what happened um, was I was playing uh, the Continental Club here in Austin, uh, uh, Steve Wertheimer's club. He, he's known me like before I could shave. And um, I'm playing one night and this woman comes in named Evelyn Shriver. And Evelyn Shriver is this real kind of uh, a big time music executive from Nashville. Uh, at one point, I think she'd been like, the president of MCA there. But anyway, she was also a publicist and she came in and she goes, I can't really get you on the radio, but I could probably get you on television. She goes, your sounds a little too dated for the radio. And I was like, Oh, thank you so much. You know, like, you know, whatever thinking I'd never hear from her again. So I get a phone call and she's like, okay, Jesse, I need you to come up to, um, Nashville, we're going to put you on this television show. And it was this real, you know, it was, it was a big deal because it was the only, uh, television show, uh, for country music. And it was called Crook and Chase. And it was very square. And it was, it, it, when I got there, I was thinking like, this reminds me of the Christian broadcasting network. You know what I mean? Like yeah. high hair and, 
the whole thing and, you know, just real dated furniture and the look of it and, and, you know, the band, you couldn't bring your own band. So they had the house band and they all had like these Garth Brooks type, you know, obnoxious neon, you know, colors. And, um, but it was a legitimate <laughs> thing. So I get there and I said, man, this is not going to be good, but at least my folks back home can see that I'm, doing well so i'm in the makeup room sitting next to ralph emery who's the biggest dj ever from from nashville and uh evelyn comes in and goes well i got good news for you jesse chris christopherson's going to be on the show tonight and he wants to meet you and chris comes back and he, you know he's more beautiful in person than you could imagine i mean he just he's one of the most charismatic looking people I've ever been around. And he goes, Hey, Jesse, I'm from Texas. And, you know, I thought to myself, okay, well, this whole thing shits the bed. At least I got to meet Chris, Chris Christopherson. So I go out, I do my song. Chris goes out, does his song, um, gives me a shout out. Um, and, I, you know, I'm thinking, well, I'll just go back. I couldn't even afford to stay where everyone was staying. I was staying in like this motel eight out in the bricks, you know, in the hood. And there's like lot lizards and drug dealers. And it was like crazy. Um, and that was the first time I'd ever been picked up by a limousine. And they picked me up at the motel eight. And all these people <laughs> are looking at me like, so I was like, man, I better get everything out of my room and spring it with me. Um, so that night, Christopherson comes up to me after the show and says, Hey, you want to go to the Gibson guitar factory with me? I'm like, yeah, but is it open? It's like nine 30 at night. He goes, they'll open it for us. And so me and him and Evelyn got in this limo and me and Chris started talking about books immediately. And he was shocked, you know, cause let's face it, man, with this accent, I got people think, you know, they think, wow, he must be banging his sister who's in the KKK. But, <laughs> but really, I've read Wuthering Heights three times. You know what I mean? Like I, I, you know, I was force fed all these classic books growing up. So me and Chris are in the back and we're smoking a joint and we're talking about Bukowski and Hunter S. Thompson. And he's telling me firsthand stories and I'm just hanging on every word. And we had this great night. We got a Gibson guitar factory and, and we, we actually stayed friends after that. Like I just actually hung out with him not too long ago before the pandemic in Austin. And uh, so the next morning I'm leaving this flea bag motel and my phone rings and there's voice goes, uh, Hey, Hoss, I got your name. I got your uh, hotel number uh, from the, from the limo driver and I'm over here at Woodland studios and wanted to know if you'd come over here and play some guitar for me. And it was Waylon Jennings. Wow. So I got, in this, <laughs> I got in this beat up truck and I drove it over to Woodland studios and I knocked on the door and Johnny cash opened the door. Holy cow. And he goes, are you just going to stand there with your mouth open? Or are you going to come in and play that thing? And then he really turned the screw and goes, hello, I'm Johnny Cash. Uh, <laughs> so I was freaking out, you know. I mean, Johnny Cash was God in bone. How old were you then? Like I was 24. Damn. Yeah. Um, so I go in and we had this great day. And that's how it all began. And and uh, I had, you know, I wrote this whole chapter in my book on John and one on Waylon, one on Chris and one on Willie. And, and, you know, I played with Ray Price and Johnny Bush and a lot of lesser known Texas legends. But, you know, but then, it you know, it just kind of kept going. And I got, you know, I played with Glenn Campbell and, you know, I was a younger guy who could hang out and keep his mouth shut and not vomit, you know, lead guitar parts all over these classic songs. I could play, you know, the melodies and, and, um, and so that's kind of, that's how that started. And then I ended up when I was leaving the studio that day, Waylon was like, 
hey, I'm doing this new record and, and I want you to come play on it. So I'm going to call you. Mark Knopfler and Pete Anderson are going to be on it too. And, and he called me and I went back and I, I actually ended up playing on the entire record. Incredible. That's incredible. Those are your, your, well, idols, but then they become kind of your godfathers. <laughs> well, they were my heroes, my idols, you know, and I have gone on to play with other people who were big time and who I loved um, and who a lot of other people love. And people will say, hey, isn't it great to play with your heroes? And I'm thinking, and of course, I always say yes. But some of those people were not my heroes. And, and that didn't mean I lo- didn't love them. But, you know, Cash and Waylon and Willie and those guys really were my heroes because those are my earliest memories of, you know, being in a back of a Suburban or a Cutlass and the eight tracks clicking over to the next, you know, in the middle of the song. It's going, uh, those, that's what was playing. Amazing. That is amazing. So tell me, how do you view, I mean, you know, cause the whole Texas music thing is kind of like its own yeah. ecosystem in a way. Sure. Um, kind of explain a little bit of that to the, my listeners. And is it the same to, I mean, it's obviously not the same cause we just talked earlier of the honky tonks and the dance halls. And I mean, those things seem to be something of the past now with right. all this progress as they say. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit just about Texas music and well, Texas music. It's a really interesting thing because the first big blues record before Robert Johnson was got by a guy named blind lemon Jefferson. who was from East Texas, not too far where I'm from. Uh, light and Hopkins was from not too far where I'm from. Um, and a lot of the Texas stuff, you know, Bob Wills, um, you know, the pioneer of Western King of Western swing, uh, the story goes is that his, his steel guitar player went over to Hawaii, heard this amazing Hawaiian slack key slide guitar, brought it back and that infiltrated, uh, country music. So, and there, so there's a, Texas has this amazing foundation. Um, if you look at it, you know, of course, you know, when I was a little kid, we had, uh, Mexican singers all over the radio. And some of it I thought sounded like circus music until I got older and played with Flaco Jimenez and realized that, oh, th- these are the best vocalists on the radio. They have better instruments and they sound more operatic and they're and they could sing. So you get all that stuff. And then you got the songwriter tradition here with Guy Clark and Towns Van Zant and those guys. And you put all that stuff together and it really creates this unique um, thing. You know, Doug Somm was really who who was the king of that. He played on my first two records and he was the guy who really took all of those things and said, I don't care what you call me. I don't care. I don't need to be in a genre. Sure, it's going to hurt my commercial uh, appeal, but I don't care. I'm going to play this song and then I'm going to do one like this and I'm going to do one like that. And so it really started in some ways, you know, he's kind of the godfather of that. And of course, you know, the broken spoke here in Austin, a lot of people don't know, but the whole cosmic cowboy and outlaw country scene really started on that stage. I mean, you had Jerry, Jeff Walker, you know, who was bigger than Willie when Willie got kicked out of Nashville and moved back here. And then Willie's playing there every week. And, uh, you know, these scenes went on to spread out throughout the nation and eventually out the world through the world. And, and, uh, you know, that's why, and plus, you know, we're just, it's such a big state. I mean, I could just play in Texas for the rest of my life and make a really nice lip. You know. Right. No, absolutely. So, and rest in peace, Doug Somm. Um, yes. You know, I met, I didn't even, when I was a young A&R man and yeah. naive and didn't have my music history so well sure. understood. <laughs> my boss was friends with Doug Somm, Ron Oberman, and he would, Doug would come in the office all the time and he was just, 
talk his head. The sweetest off. guy. Oh, he was amazing. It's like, who is this guy? How come I don't know about him? Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. Great the guy. A lot of people didn't uh, until the Texas Tornadoes super group were put together and they, they ended up selling a lot of records to country audiences, but um, yeah, man, a Doug song for me. Uh, one time I went to a, uh, a opening day at the Astros baseball in Houston and I went with Clifford Antone and Doug song and I drove this 50 Ford and they, and they talked the whole way about baseball and smoke so much weed. So we would drop, we would be driving past these Texas troopers on I-10 and there'd be just like, it was like Cheech and Chong, just weed smoke just coming out. I'm super paranoid and they don't care at all. <laughs> amazing. So amazing. So, um, so you've done like, what have you done now? Like 11 solo records? Is that kind of where I you're at so. at this point? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I think did the label thing work out for you. I mean, like you said, you got a label deal. You went to LA. I mean, how did that work for you or what did, did that teach you? Well, it did work for me in the sense that it empowered me and told and showed me what I didn't want to happen. You uh, know, um, you know, the, the thing about big labels is, and you know, this, um, you know, a lot of people don't know, but the first two Bob, the first two Bruce Springsteen records and the first two Tom Waits records, which didn't sell at all, uh, were made with money that Barbara Streisand had made for the label, you know, and that's a great thing um, to fund newer audience, newer artists uh, with, you know, she wasn't really a heritage, but she was just super hot then. Um, and that's great if you're going to go, if you've got a way to get that music to the masses. And uh, for me, you know, I was always kind of an oddball and I was, I was self-sufficient, which made me kind of a hard deal, uh, pill to swallow with guys because it was never a do or die situation for me. I was just like, mm -hmm. well, if this doesn't work out. I'll just go. I'll go back and play four gigs in Texas and take care of my bills for the next few months and, and go do something else, you know, and by no means was I getting rich or famous, but, um, I was building this story and, and I knew that like, I mean, it's still happening. Like it's still happening now. Like I got a call the other day from Glenn Danzig and I'm going to go out and work with Glenn Danzig. And, and, and right before the apocalypse, I went and played with Lee scratch Perry and like just bizarre things, you know, um, because I'll get in the room and I'll find a part and I'll find a place and I will, I will make it better uh, and make people feel good, which is the whole thing. But the L.A. experience was really good for me. I mean, that's how I met my wife. And, you know, <clears throat> you know, her family is like a legendary. Yeah. I mean, and, and so I learned a lot. And she used to tell me all the time. She was like, oh, you just need to do all this stuff on your own and keep the lion's share of the money. You don't need to. She's like, all you really need is a great lawyer and a great booking agent. And then all this other stuff is like, you know, they were basically bad bank loans that I was getting from labels. That's what they are. Yeah. And, and Hey, that's cool. I get it. That's the way it goes. And I'm not, I'm definitely not here to bad mouth labels because uh, they don't need me. They've already done enough damage themselves, you know? Um, but I learned a I lot, man. I learned a lot out there. How do you, um, look, you just spoke about Lee Scratch Perry, Glenn Danzig, you know, the legends you've played with. I mean, what, you, how do you characterize like your guitar style? I mean, are you just so adaptable? <laughs> how do you, do you think you have a specific style that detracts these people? Or do you think you're, um, you know, kind of bendable to their, well, I do, where think, going. I do think that, um, I do think that if you listen to me play that you'll go, you'll know who I am, but I also 
believe, you know, like when I got into, when I first started learning, you know, I came in the back door through Jamaican music through the clash, you know, um, like all the punk rock people in London, um, in the seventies, you know, um, that's all they listened to was reggae music. You know, we, we played a show. We, we were of, we were, we would literally go and play in London and no one would show up. We would have like a small handful of people. And then Joe Strummer's widow, Lucinda, uh, saw us and she called all her friends. And then that the next night the show was sold out. It literally happened like that. And, and I, and I got to meet, you know, Chrissy Hine and all these people and became friends with them. And they were all they talked, you know, all they were into back then was reggae music. Um, but I think what it is, man, is, you know, people, a lot of it's just me meeting people socially, you know, and they're like, oh, that guy, you know, I, I had a nice conversation with him and. You know, it's that kind of thing. Uh, it can happen a million different ways, you know. And um, talk a little bit about the film part of your life. Um, you seem to have an obsession with zombies. I don't know if that's true. Like, well, I mean, how did the connection with Rob Zombie come together? You directed a film kind of about zombies. So let's yeah. talk a little bit about your, well, your film uh, career. Well, I was always a film nerd. And uh, a good buddy of mine, Lou Temple from Houston, Texas, he's in, he's been in LA forever. And if you saw a picture of him, you would say, oh yeah, I've seen that guy. He's one of those, I think it's 6% of uh, SAG actors who uh, aren't stars, but make a really nice living. And he's done everything, film, TV, you know, platform, whatever. Um, but he was doing a film with Rob Zombie called The Devil's Rejects. And Rob, he told Rob, uh, hey, you know, what about making this fake country record um, for the band that's in the movie? Why don't you get my pal? So Rob called me up. He's like, hey, man, we're making the ultimate white trash uh, horror movie. We think <laughs> your music would be perfect. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And so, and I didn't really know a lot about Rob Zombie. You know, I'm just, I'm just, I mean, not that I don't love Rob now, because trust me, man, I love Rob Zombie now. But I knew more human. I knew that hit song that was on the radio, but I'd never really paid attention to it. And he definitely didn't know who I was, right? Um, so we, I flew out to LA and, you know, checked into the Chateau Mormon. Uh, started drinking some brown liquor and writing these ridiculous songs. And, and then the next day he got a car and sent for me and I went to the studio and I brought my guitar and I sat down and I started playing these funny kind of hillbilly horror songs. And he was like, this is great. He literally fell out of his chair on the, on the floor laughing. And he's like, let's do a whole record. And I was like, great. And, uh, and so he, I did a whole record and we sold it to his audience and it did, you know, the guy sold whatever 20 million records or whatever it is. So we sold a lot of records and, and Rob's a really great business guy. And I learned so much from him. And uh, so we ended up doing that. And then he put me in his movie, Halloween, and then I did another soundtrack for Halloween 2. And then we did an animated film where I did music for that. And, uh, and I just learned all this stuff about him. And then, and then he brought me on tour as the band from the Halloween movie. So we went up dressed up like this band every night, opening for Rob. These are like huge places. And for, for those of the listeners who aren't, haven't kept up with Rob and since they were in high school, he's bigger now than he used to be. Okay. He's like right under Ozzy. All right. He's playing like 7,500 seat and up venues. So it's straight up real rock star shit. Right. And, 
And uh, so I did this whole tour and then I wrote a screenplay while I was on tour with him. And I wrote like two pages a day. We did like 40 shows. So I got home and I had like almost a hundred pages and, and uh, I wrote it and rewrote it and wrote it and rewrote it. And I got in touch with uh, a friend of mine who was a producer and we called Malcolm McDowell. And once we got Malcolm McDowell in my film, the money came and everybody else came overnight. So we make that was called Zombex. Zombex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, it's like a Roger Corman esque mm. B movie, and um, we shot it all in New Orleans and East Texas, and um, and it's and we took it to Cannes and and we and it sold at the Cannes market, and uh, and I actually made money off of that's a. Who can say that in the film business? Yeah, That's awesome. I mean, I, I talked to several people about it. I, mean, I didn't make much, but I got paid for, for what I did. And, and uh, you know, and I realized that I never want to be a film director because that's like the hardest thing ever. Um, so, and what's, what, what makes that hard for you? I mean, which part of it? Well, I don't mind answering a lot of questions. I don't mind having a really cemented, solid point of view, uh, all that stuff. But I do mind only getting four or five hours of sleep uh, for 30 days. And, right. And, uh, you know, but I got, I ended up getting, uh, like I had to fight to get Corey Feldman in the film because they were like, he's washed up. I was like, John Travolta was making talking baby movies before Pulp Fiction. You know, I said, this guy has a name. I love Goonies. I love all those movies he was in when I was a kid. Let's get Corey Feldman. So we did, and we got Corey Feldman in it. Hey, like great Sid Haig, you know, who I'd been watching my entire life, you know, everything from Bond films to Pam Greer, you know, black exploitation films and and we had Kinky Friedman. We had John Doe from X. That's how I met John Doe and went on to play uh, with X when Billy Zoom got cancer. And, and uh, you know, it was just crazy. And, and uh, but I really, I realized that I was a writer and that I could write. And I had actually licensed the script before that. And I had written a few plays. So... You know, that's a real uh, part of my life. I get up every morning, I put on my tool belt and I go out to my office and I write. That's awesome. It's a ritual. It is. It's a ritual. It's a discipline. And, yep. and I don't have any expectations, you know, got it. just get it done. And, you know, I mean, even if you write a few pages a day, you know, in a hundred days, you're going to have like a lot of stuff. So it's the same thing with scripts or songs or whatever. Right. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, my adopted hometown here of Austin and your, yeah. really your hometown as an adult. Um, yeah. You know, it continues to kind of lose a little bit of its identity, right? And it's tougher for musicians to, you know, even affordability issues here now, right? right. Um what do you make of where we're at, where it's going? What's the positive? Um, so we don't sound like old men on the porch. Right, get um, off my lawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it, you know, what, this is what I think is happening. Um, and I, and cause I traveled so much up until the pandemic. Um, cause I have this cult following in Europe and in North America, and I have to go out and play for them once or twice a year. So when I first started going to, you know, drink wine on Los Rambles in Barcelona, they didn't have, uh, they didn't have McDonald's. Uh, now they do. Okay. So it's not just happening in Austin. It's happening in every major city. Um, of course we cry about it harder in Austin because I'll be real honest with you. And this is going to, I don't mean this to be like a sucker punch, but Austin has and always will be the coolest town that I've ever hung out in. 
There are things that happened to me in Austin that could never happen to me in New York or Los Angeles or London or Nashville. They sell too many Bibles in Nashville. London is not America. So they so the music's being regurgitated and sold back to us. New York's great, but it's very insular. And there's not as many Southerners and Texans up there, except for the writers, you know, that came up and stirred up the local color with Southern Gothic novels and stuff like that. L.A., yes, it does. It's got a long, uh, sordid history of Texans and Southerners going out there. But because of its machine of just eating things up and spitting them out, it, there, you know, there's... Um, it just, it's not the same as Austin. Like, you know, uh, Austin in the early days, and I talk about this in my book, I could walk into the Black Cat Lounge and and you would see Stevie Ray Vaughan, Charlie Sexton, uh, all of the butthole surfers. Um, you would see all of these people who, were legends here and they knew about them outside of Austin to some degree. Um, but the cool thing about Austin is people up until now, up until the last 20, 10, 15 years, people were always suspicious of success. Like there was a healthy skepticism, um, kind of like the way my grandfather, who was a union guy, was was more skeptical of people who made over a hundred thousand dollars a year than he was of black people or brown people. And mm-hmm. and and uh, and so the cool factor in Austin because the, you know the it's a freak show here. It's a basically it's a it's it's a hotbed of liberal pinko commie freak shows, um, and it, and it's you know. It's like Berkeley with a soul, you know what I mean? And, 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 uh, and you have, you know, it's the hotbed of the whole South. And, and there's a big political scene here. And there really was when I was younger, you know, you had Molly Ivins writing all this incredible stuff for the Austin Statesman and the New York Times. Um, you had all this activism. I mean, last week, our last Saturday morning, at the Capitol in Austin, Texas, Willie Nelson and Beto O'Rourke were all down there with I don't know how many people, tens of thousands, uh, you know, trying to get something passed. And that doesn't happen in Houston or Dallas, especially not Dallas. Um, but, you know, I bought this house for $108,000 so for 20 years ago. And my neighbor just sold her house for 720 grand. So they're jacking up my, my, you know, property taxes. Property taxes. Thank you. My property yeah. taxes. And, uh, but I'm not, I don't know where else I would live. I don't want to sell my house. I don't, I don't, I love where I live. I, you know, and there's a lot of people moving here from, you know, San Francisco and New York and Los Angeles, and they're tearing down the houses and building McMansions. And, and that's just part of it. You know, I'm not, a lot of people are really upset about it, but I'm like, why are you upset about it? You can't, are you looking for something to vent, use to vent? Is this a vehicle, you know, because right. we can't do anything about it. No, it's just unfortunate because the cities are driving out, you know, creatives, right? Who make the city. That's the whole vibe. That's why people come here and it's why it's desirable. Yeah. But then the creatives that make it can't afford to get by, can't afford to live in the city. So, I mean, it's, you know. Yeah, and we've seen. There needs to be a little balance, you know. It's kind of just going off the chain a little bit. Yeah, well, we've seen this happen in San Francisco. We've seen it happen in New York. um, And they run all the artists off. And um, these mega bastards that own, that run our uh, that run our government here, um, you know, none of them have ever won one election in Travis County where Austin is, right? Um, right. And so they don't like this this place. 
and uh, and they'll they're never going to put in proper regulations uh, because of their far, you know, critical thinking platform that they, you know, they, 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 they think we're the sheep, which is crazy. Right. Um, but you know, yes, we could, we could keep some places for artists to live here if we had some regulations, but this, right. this wild West bullshit that they, you know, it's a, this far macho, Thing, that part, you know, that that whole thing. And it really bums me out, man, because I actually did grow up around some real badasses. And and it was they never took their guns anywhere. Right. And they were always sweet and kind to people and nice to, you know, they clean up their language and put their beer away if a woman walked in the room and, 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 um, and they had long relationships with, uh, you know, people from the, the different religions or different colors or whatever like that. That's the way Boma was back in the day. And now there's this kind of fake macho thing that it outrages me because I'm like, Dude, you're not tough. You're an accountant, okay? That uh, the little brown guy that's 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 being driven out of uh, the cartel city where his family got murdered, who picks you know fruit, is not trying to take your accounting job, right? So they've been they've been duped. They're marks. They've been conned, and. Uh, and it bums me out because Texas, I always thought, was a little, we had a better infrastructure than, say, Mississippi and Alabama and a place like that. We had all this endless amounts of, you know, oil and natural uh, resources and a great highway system. And, and uh, we had this amazing education, public educational system. And it's like none of that matters anymore. We might as well be in, you know, Mississippi. Right. Self-reliance, you know. Yeah, but, you know. That, Their version of self-reliance. Yeah, they, well, look what happened when we all froze to death. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, that was because that's that was, you know, that's a perfect example of uh, this libertarian pipe dream. It's like we're going to turn into Somalia any second, the next time it freezes. Right. Okay. We're going to do a little rapid fire here and I'll wrap it up for you. Sure. Ben. So uh, touring plans, or are you being conscientious around this new variant and stuff? Do you have stuff on the books? Yeah, we do. We just pushed it back. Um, but we are being conscious of it. Um, but we are going to start a tour. The book and a companion record is going to come out on November 9th. And then I think we start that day in Phoenix. And then we, we do a West Coast tour. Now, if things get progressively worse, uh, then we'll pull back. And I'm fine doing that, you know. Right. Um, and... What did I have here? There was one. Oh, do you have it? You have your own show, like on Gimme Country. I do. Um, for the listeners who don't know, um, there is a app that you can get on your phone for absolutely free. It's G I M M E Country, and my show is on every Wednesday, two p.m. Pacific time, four p.m. Central, five p.m. Eastern, and ten p.m. for our listeners in UK. And it's free. And so you just put in Gimme Country wherever you get your podcast or apps. You listen on your phone. And uh, I play all this crazy stuff, whatever I want to play. And I have all these great guests on there. I mean, I just had uh, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. Um, as you know, Dusty just passed away. And what, let me tell you, when a member of ZZ Top passes away in Texas, it's a big deal. Uh, but I had, you know, just had Duff McKagan on there and, you know, I have all kinds of people uh, have been on there. So it's not just a country show. Um, uh, so it's a really, really, really cool show. 
So yeah, I like those guys. I met them when they were uh, went through TechStars. Oh yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Huh? Tyler is one of the yeah 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 fantastic guys. So it's an interesting concept. So it is it is. I hope it uh, you know it's scaling pretty good, and I hope it I hope it uh, does good. You know, there's people sniffing around, interested in buying it, and uh, it's great. I love having my own show. I mean, I have a new guest every week, and uh, yeah, that's my regrets about the podcast. You know, is I can't do any music on here, and it's you know. I don't know. Talking about music sometimes seems a little uh, boring and redundant rather than hearing it and listening to it. Um, So it's a tough, it's a tough thing to do, you know, it is, but it's also, you know, hopefully an exchange of ideas. I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts, you know, and uh, I listen to tiny ones and I listen to big ones and, and the exchange of ideas always inspires me because I'm like, wow, that's great. What if I tried it like this? And, you know, this podcast era that we're living in right now is pretty amazing. Yeah, I don't think people, some do, but I think the majority of people don't understand the value of this. I mean, this is like, yeah. it's all free, you know what I mean? And it's, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a lot of thought leadership going on. And I, as you say, exchanges of ideas, and it's a great format. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much stuff that you can do right now. Emily just, uh, took some law classes online for free from Harvard. So great. I mean, that's yeah, I have crazy. Some, yeah, that's awesome. It's awesome. Open, open, open. So, yeah. All right, my friend, listen, I could go on. We'll probably do part twos of this when the book comes out. Right on later, If I can convince you. Yeah. Um, and as friends, we could go on like this for hours, but we're not going to. Um, Let's go have dinner. To, yeah. I hope to see you soon, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm vaccinated. I would have, I would have got 10 shots in, in, in March if they would have let me. Um, but, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you a hug brother and let's, let's go get some, you know, break bread together. Cool. I love it. Stay healthy, my friend. Okay, brother. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the podcast capital, Austin, Texas. My producer is Sean O'Neill. Visit theradicalpot.com for updates and even some merchandise. Also, please subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I also ask that you please share episodes with your friends so we can continue to grow our community. See you all again next Friday.